From Public Radio International, this is America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. People think Tibet means monks and then living in the caves. Yangchen Lamo is a native Tibetan now living in New York. People think Tibet means monks and smiling face and yogis and, you know, some kind of like this. Tibet, holy land, center of the universe, Earth's soul, the heart of the world. These stereotypes are everywhere. To get beyond them, we called up Jocelyn Ford. She's a longtime China correspondent and the director of the documentary Nowhere to Call Home, a Tibetan in Beijing. She's been stationed in China for the past 15 years and traveled to various Tibetan regions, including Lhasa, the capital of the Tibet Autonomous Region. And she joins us now. Hi, Jocelyn. Hi, Madeline. All right, so let's go through some stereotypes that we have. And number one, when we think of Tibet, many of us think of it as a place full of yak herders and monks on mountaintops. Is that really the case? For this reporting trip I went on for you guys, I did run into some yaks. And, you know, they really do exist. I was up at about 11,000 feet, which is high enough to get altitude sickness. And um, I also ran into monks. So, I mean, these images, there is a basis for them. Um, However, I think the best visual metaphor I had was this fashion statement by a three-year-old tyke who was running around the monastery on a blue plastic tricycle. And uh, he was weaving in between all of these believers who were doing their full prostrations. Ah. And he was wearing a New York baseball cap. So you go to these isolated pockets and... um, you know, you find people are tuned into the global community in one way or another. Um, a lot of the people I met were very excited to meet a, a, a foreigner, an American, and wanted to get on social media with me, for example. Oh. So you've got the monks and the yak herders who are actually plugged into 21st century technology. Absolutely. Um, You know, you've got yak herders uh, herding on motorcycles and uh, with cell phones, of course. They're sort of de rigueur. Sort of think seven years in Tibet meets the social network. How's that? (laughs) Okay, that sounds good. All right, so let's talk about Tibet itself. Is it a country? Is it a territory? How should we think of it? You know, as I travel around the world with my film, I find a lot of people are confused about this. First of all, let me say there is a political Tibet that most people, when they look at a map and they see the Tibet Autonomous Region, that's the area that was traditionally where the Dalai Lama was influential. But there is an ethnic Tibet, which is much larger and spans across several other provinces in China. And in fact, more Tibetans live outside the Tibet Autonomous Region than live in it, something which isn't that well known. So Lhasa is the capital, and you've been there. However, isn't it largely closed to foreign journalists and academics? It's very difficult to get to the Tibet Autonomous Region. Journalists can apply for permission, but it's rarely given. So what I did for this particular report uh, that you'll hear later in the show is I went to one of the areas that is open to foreigners. And, of course, I didn't announce that I was going there. So I stayed with farmers mostly and did not register in the hotels, which would have brought perhaps police attention. And it can be quite dangerous for Tibetans to talk to foreigners. If you mention the Dalai Lama, for example, somebody could get in trouble. 
interestingly, I found that the Tibetans I met in urban areas were much more cautious in talking with me than Tibetans in rural areas who uh, some of them spoke freely about their their thoughts about the Dalai Lama. And I actually uh, found a lot of uh, big, larger-than-life photographs of the Dalai Lama, even in a monastery. Well, Jocelyn, thank you very much. And we'll be hearing from you later in the program. You'll be giving us a report on the changing culture in Tibet. So we'll look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you. That's Jocelyn Ford. She is a longtime Beijing-based journalist and director of the documentary Nowhere to Call Home, a Tibetan in Beijing. Tibetans practice a particular form of Buddhism. Gray Tuttle is a professor of modern Tibetan studies at Columbia University. He explains what Tibetan Buddhists believe. Well, first, I guess, what is Buddhism? Buddhism was founded by a human. They think of the Buddha as a person who achieved enlightenment and wanted to teach other people that path. The Buddha suggested the people test his words, and you know, if they weren't true, don't use them, throw them out. Uh, so that's why it's sometimes treated more as a philosophy. But in Tibet, it's really a religion in that there are gods, deities, mystical practices, miracles, all, all those things that we associate with religion. And another way that Tibetan Buddhism is different than other Buddhisms is that in all Buddhisms, the Buddha, his teachings, you know, the words of the Buddha and the community, the religious community that he set up and continued his teachings are important. But in Tibet, all of those are trumped by the Lama. And it just means your personal teacher. So that's something that makes, for instance, the place of the Dalai Lama really significant in Tibet. Uh, you know, people have compared him to a god king. It's, it's not that he's a god king, but it's like having the Buddha here on earth. You can imagine, you know, if people had Jesus Christ here on earth, you know, the kind of devotion that would be devoted to him is, is intense. And that's the kind of devotion that goes not just to the Dalai Lama, but to literally over a thousand different lamas. But if you want to seek out a lama, you don't have to trek across the globe. Tibetan Buddhism is growing in upstate New York. There, you'll find a place devoted to spreading the teachings of Tibetan Buddhism and the community that has embraced it. Reporter Karen Michelle paid a visit. Karma Triana Dharma Chakra, KTD, is a Tibetan Buddhist monastery on a windy mountain road in Woodstock, New York. It's considered an auspicious site, protected by a mountain to the north and overlooking a reservoir with the same name as the first Buddhist king of India. Founded in the mid-1970s as a place to keep and spread the authentic teaching of Tibetan Buddhism, KTD reminds the 36-year-old president, Kampo Karma Tenkyon, of his Tibetan homeland. It looks like a little bit different because of the style of the culture, training, the practice, but the reality root is the same. It's so authentic looking that film director Martin Scorsese used the main shrine room for scenes in his film Kundun. As it is in many religions, as Buddhism has moved and morphed, it has adapted to the ways of its practitioners. In Zen Buddhism, there's austerity. The colors are subdued, decoration minimal, rituals simple, and quiet. Tibetan Buddhism is nothing like that. No surface unembellished by primary colors and accents of gold. It's visually dense and liturgically complex. Here, Kempo Tenkyon leads a ceremony punctuated by a drum and cymbals. The chanting is in Tibetan, though he is the only native speaker in the small shrine room, pungent with incense.
The ceremony, called a puja, honors Mahakala, a visual representation of anger, depicted in a painting as a dark-colored creature with fangs surrounded by flames. Though this fearsome image is used as another aspect of key teachings of the Buddha, the importance of loving-kindness and compassion for all beings. Six practitioners sit on round cushions, half wearing traditional Tibetan Buddhist robes of deep red and mustard yellow, the rest like Kay Larson in civilian clothes. I love the, the noisy expression. I love the, the always-something-going-on aspects, uh, but I also miss the silence. The silence of Zen. Larson was a Zen Buddhist for a decade before coming to KTD in Tibetan Buddhism more than a dozen years ago. She finds the emotional experience more engaging. All the Buddhist practices at their very core are identical. They all come out of the Buddhist teachings about mind and about how suffering is created and, and how I can change my suffering by understanding how to change my mind. In Zen, your mind is in the moment. So when you die, you die. So Zen people say, if you're going to die, just die. Um, you know, don't make a fuss about it. Just die. And um, you'll just be in the moment as you're doing that. And then you'll find out when you get to the other side of what it's, what's going to happen to you. But Tibetan Buddhists think about and prepare for death all the time. It's a key difference. KTD president and resident teacher Kempo Tenkyon says the death teachings are really appealing to Westerners who like an element of control of their own destiny, or what's known as karma, and they want it fast. Because uh, most of the, the lay people, they just want to practice short and sweet and before the dead, you know. When we die, when we need someone, nobody is there. So that's what they want to practice. Westerners may have seen copies of the Tibetan Book of the Dead in gift shops and online purveyors of enlightenment, but that's just the tip of a very deep journey. There are specific, wildly less obtainable instructions, teachings, about preparing oneself and helping others on their passage through death and toward an auspicious human rebirth. For that, you need a qualified guide, a teacher, perhaps none more qualified than the still-robust 93-year-old abbot of KTD, Tibetan-born Kempo Karta Rinpoche. Kempo means precious one and indicates great learning. In the large shrine room at KTD, the walls and ceiling are painted a deep yellow. Brocade banners in bright colors wrap around the pillars and crossbeams. Paintings of revered teachers with silk cloth borders hang near the top of the walls. In front of a several times human scale gold statue of the Buddha sits Karta Rinpoche and his translator. Perhaps 80 others are here lay people and lamas in robes of red and yellow, Tibetans, Chinese, and Westerners from this and other countries, attending a week long teaching for advanced students about the ejection of consciousness at the time of death, Poa. To tell you the truth, the majority of beings uh, are reborn in lower states. Kempo Karta Rinpoche was a founder of KTD, sent by the Karmapa, who, like the Dalai Lama, is a leader of one of the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism. KTD wasn't the first Tibetan Buddhist monastery in the U.S. That was in Colorado. But Kartar Rinpoche is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, teacher in the West who was born in Tibet and trained by Tibetan masters. 
Today, Rinpoche is welcoming new practitioners in a brief ceremony called Taking Refuge. We take refuge in the Buddha as a teacher and as an example. KTD is a flourishing Tibetan Buddhist center where hundreds of people come to learn and to worship. But a very small subset takes the training to become a lama, a teacher. It's an intense commitment, a literal retreat from friends and family, studying and meditating. On this Saturday morning at KTD, 13 students, seven men and six women, are officially graduating from the three-year retreat. They haven't seen their friends or loved ones for all this time. KTD's Lama Karma Drodul says that most Western students aren't willing to put in the work. Uh, I think patience is extremely important. You, know, you go for a weekend teaching and you feel, oh yeah, I had wonderful time, the teaching was brilliant. But it, simply having a wonderful feeling doesn't capture the meaning of Dharma. Practice is extremely important. Kathy Wesley completed her three-year retreat to become a Lama in 1976. Now she leads a Tibetan Buddhist center in Columbus, Ohio. What I really find moving about the Tibetan path is it is so pragmatic. And it also talks about how dealing with your everyday uh, mental afflictions, uh, how to deal with your anger, how to deal with your sadness, how to deal with jealousy and competitiveness. Learning all of these techniques of meditation and putting them together, I feel, is the richness of Tibetan Buddhism. Lama Kathy and other Western Lamas are instrumental in adapting Tibetan and other forms of Buddhism for the West. Teachings are shorter and questions are encouraged. KTD President Kempo Karma Tenkyon has only been in America for a year and a half, but he feels that just as Buddhism has always adapted to different cultures, it won't be much longer before Tibetan Buddhism becomes American Buddhism. For America Abroad, I'm Karen Michelle. Coming up, we look into what life is like for Tibetans today, both in their homeland and beyond. The Chinese like Tibetan culture, but only certain parts of it. It's just that they get to decide which parts of Tibetan culture should be improved and which should be discarded. Do you have a story about Tibet you want to share with us? Join our conversation on Facebook or check out our website, americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to America Abroad. Today, we've devoted the program to exploring Tibet, its religion, its culture, and its political status under modern Chinese rule, which began in 1950. Robbie Barnett is director of the Modern Tibetan Studies Program at Columbia University. He explains that while many things in Tibet are changing, a lot is still the same. 75% or perhaps more Tibetans still live in the countryside, and a large number, maybe a million or more of them are still yak herders. But the Chinese government has decided that nomadic herding should end in China, and it's moving most of these people to live in towns. Nobody's quite sure how they will survive once they 
are moved into towns. There is a lot of prosperity in the towns in Tibet now. The Chinese government in the last 20 years has poured massive amounts of money into uh, subsidies into these Tibetan towns to try and improve its political standing there. There are flyovers and multi-story buildings and railways and, and all kinds of modern amenities. And there's now a very wealthy middle class of Tibetans living in towns, primarily people who work for the government. So there's rapid change taking place. But still in the countryside, you can see villages and uh, monasteries that, that still have a very distinctive Tibetan feel to them. Is the push by the Chinese to move people into the cities, is that a way for the Chinese to try to erase that ancient culture? Not exactly. The Chinese have a very, very strong conviction that they're improving culture and improving Tibetans' past. They thrive on this image hugely propagated in the Chinese media that Tibetans in the past were backward, feudal, slaves to the terrible lamas and the aristocrats and so forth. And the Chinese feel that very strongly that they're on a mission to improve their lives. And, but the problem in that, apart from its radical simplification of the past, is that China seems to have mainly just a single idea of what modernization and improvement could look like. And so it insists that this is urbanization, it's a sort of Chinese idea of modernity. The Chinese like Tibetan culture, but only certain parts of it. They like the singing and dancing, that's very much encouraged. They like the colorfulness of Tibetan art and so on. But they're very very tentative, very nervous about some aspects of Tibetan religion and, of course, very reactive against anything that suggests any kind of nationalism. So it's not that the Chinese feel they're destroying anything. They feel they're improving Chinese culture. It's just that they get to decide which parts of Tibetan culture should be improved and which should be discarded. And what is the effect, then, on the Tibetan culture right now with this push to modernization. Are we losing some of that culture, that ancient culture? Well, it does vary a bit in different parts of Tibet. But in central Tibet, the areas around Lhasa, for at least the last 30 or so years, it's been extremely aggressive. And there, there's no tolerance for any kind of criticism of the government at all. And so people in those areas have become essentially quiescent. Nobody can dare to speak about any critical policy at all. Uh, and we do see quite a lot of Tibetan culture there left, but nobody's allowed to mention the Dalai Lama or express reverence or even respect for him, or even if it's uh, secular and or not religious. Uh, in the eastern parts of Tibet, there's a little bit more leeway in some areas, and we see Tibetans who are able to talk about certain issues of culture, but not really about politics. And overall, yeah, there's this huge fear among Tibetans, some of it justified, some of it maybe overstated uh, anticipation that their culture is dying out. And there is some evidence that this can be happening with language as China pushes more and more for people to speak and study and learn in Chinese language. There is a, a loss of Tibetan in the towns. It's still very strong in the countryside. There is a Tibetan diaspora in India and increasingly here in the United States. How is that diaspora keeping the language alive and keeping Tibetan culture alive, if it is? Well, the, the diaspora Tibetans, there's about 150,000 of them. They're a tiny percentage of the Tibetan population, about 3% of the 6 million or so Tibetans uh, who are mostly inside Tibet. They've been very active in terms of 
a political activity in terms of mobilizing international support and so on. But in fact, they've suffered many of the same difficulties and challenges that Tibetans inside Tibet face. So in Tibet, it, they face it by force, and outside they face it from circumstance, which is a lot of younger Tibetans uh, in the diaspora also losing their language, taking on English or the language of the host country they're in, India or maybe France or other European countries. Uh, and so they're suffering a, a loss of their culture too, although they don't suffer these results by force. The Tibetans in, in Tibet don't really have any say over what language they learn in and so on. And that'll be a big problem. Why? Why would that be a big problem if they are such a small percentage of Tibetans? The the exiled Tibetans are hugely vocal. They're a kind of mouthpiece. They're the spokesman for the inside Tibetans. That's how they see themselves. And they, they have been that. It's been very difficult, actually, as a role, because most of them have no knowledge of, uh, of what's happening in Tibet in any depth. Uh, they, they ha many of them haven't been there uh, or, or don't have deep opportunities to study the situation. So it's been a difficult situation when you're when you're the spokesperson or self-appointed spokesperson for a vast community that isn't really allowed to speak, and yet you don't really know its condition in detail. So that's always a, a, a difficulty. What we're going to see, I think, in the future is that the community inside Tibet, as it gains more confidence through the advent of social media and other ways of getting information, is going to try and speak more directly to the outside world, perhaps in anonymized ways, if it can, um, and gradually the, the spokespersons for Tibet will become Tibetans from inside Tibet. That's slowly beginning to happen, but it may take a long time. And it will may be difficult for some of the exiles to, to quite adapt to that changed reality. This clash between old and new, between Tibetan culture and Chinese modernity, is particularly acute in the city of Chengdu. That's a Chinese city near the border of Tibet. Beijing-based reporter Jocelyn Ford brings us the story of a wedding and photos that captured this tension. Wearing a traditional brocade Tibetan robe and an ornate silver sword, 30-year-old Kaesong Funsok stands nervously by his bride. The master of ceremonies chants blessings. Then he drapes a yellow ceremonial scarf around the groom's neck. The hotel ballroom breaks out in whistles and hoots of approval. The weak bridegroom, Kaesong Funsok, and his wife, Dawa Joma, tied the knot. They were not only newlyweds, they were also newly famous, thanks to social media. Days before their wedding, Funsok posted their photo album online. Virtually overnight, the glamorous wedding pictures were seen by about 500 million. Yes, that's half a billion people more than the populations of the U.S., Canada, and Mexico combined. The photos were extraordinary, not just because of the slick camera work and the couple's good looks. They were also extraordinary because they defied common stereotypes about Tibetans. In the staged photos, the couple posed with a Lamborghini and a helicopter. Both were borrowed, says Funsok. He's the co-founder of a trendy ad agency with clients the likes of Starbucks. The helicopter is one of my... Um, business partner. The couple also posed in traditional settings. They're seen doing nomadic chores in the grasslands. They traveled to Lhasa to take photos in front of the most sacred temple for Tibetans, the Jokong. The couple had no idea their photos would be shared so widely. Funsak did intend to send a message, but only to his close circle of urban professional Tibetan friends. Let's call them tuppies. 
Many, like him, grew up in small Tibetan towns or rural areas, but now live in giant Chinese cities. We live in the modern city. We have the uh, modern lifestyle as in the meantime, and we lost something good maybe in our blood, in our heart. Sometimes we're confused. This is one of the quintessential questions facing all migrants who, across the ages, have left their villages for the big city. Well, about three-quarters of Tibetans live in rural areas, and the illiteracy rate is still about 40 percent. The number of college graduates has been increasing. Ambitious graduates like Funsok are heading to China's most developed cities to be on the cutting edge of their industry. This means moving into an environment dominated by the so-called Han Chinese, who account for 90 percent of China's population. And it means making some uncomfortable adjustments. Adjustments Funso finds easier to express in Chinese. In the city, to earn money and get what we want, we have to give up some of our integrity, some of our Tibetan religious convictions. So everyone feels confused. We don't know what to choose. Funsok admits it hasn't been easy finding a balance between his upbringing and making it as an entrepreneur. My religion and my Tibetan cultural background told me money is not the most important thing in your life. And there are many, many things more important than money. But now you live in the city, you should follow some rules here, right? Have you had to follow rules you really don't want to? Yeah, sometimes. I have no choice. In China's mainstream business culture, kickbacks are common practice. Businesses are expected to wine and dine their clients or even entertain them at brothels. Funsok isn't the only one in Chengdu struggling to strike a balance between old and new. His friend Cheba recently opened a coffee shop and co-working space called Charu. He named it after the Tibetan word for the toggle that ties together nomadic yak hair tents like the one Cheba grew up in. The decor is a mix of intricately carved old wooden doorways, mud walls, and modern Tibetan art. Call it contemporary Tibetan chic. Uh, as a Tibetan, we try to um, promote Tibetan culture uh, in this modern city. There is understated resentment among young professional Tibetans that elsewhere in the world, some seem to think Tibetans in China who adapt an urban lifestyle are selling out to the Han Chinese majority. Professor Tupten Funsok, no relation to the bridegroom, is an internationally known scholar of Tibetan traditional medicine and history. If the tradition or culture helps for our uh, lifestyle, of course we have to preserve it, develop it. If it cannot help our life, it is not necessary to preserve it. But some young Tibetans are struggling to maintain pride in their culture. Droma is an academic who researches contemporary Tibetan society. Some young Tibetans when they move to cities, start to think their traditional culture is worthless and backwards. It doesn't help them make money or improve their standard of living. So some young Tibetans feel inferior. The Chinese Communist Party's narrative doesn't help. It depicts a benevolent Han Chinese majority lending a helping hand to the nation's quote-unquote backward minorities. While many Han Chinese admire certain aspects of Tibetan culture, for example, Tibetan spirituality, dance and music, 
Stereotypes of Tibetans as primitive or violent barbarians abound. In some cases, this breeds contempt. Take 57-year-old Tibetan peasant Ajaku. Along with her three daughters, Ajaku has turned her idyllic traditional home, perched high in the mountains, into a hostel for tourists. She serves homemade sausages and pickled vegetables. Her three sisters in is even on TripAdvisor. Ajaku is illiterate. She grew up in dire poverty in a village near the town where wedding groom Funsok was born. As a child, she didn't even have shoes. She recalls once trying to buy something in Funsok's hometown. I asked the price. The shopkeeper said, Don't you have eyes? It's written there. I said, I'm illiterate. She said, You Tibetans are so stupid. And then she told me, My hands are dirty. Don't touch anything. These entrenched attitudes are why admin Funsok and his wife turned a half billion heads. Welcome to TBT. Welcome to Think Beyond Tradition. Thank you. At his ad agency, Think Beyond Tradition, posters of inspirational figures, among them Steve Jobs, Michael Jackson, and Jesus Christ, hang in the corridors along with their famous quotes. And we have Mandela up here, and he says, He says, forgiveness frees you, me, and the world. In Funsok's office, Tibetan and Chinese calligraphy hang on the wall, along with a copy of a European world map from the Age of Discovery, a large Tibetan Buddhist shrine dominates one side of the room. Back at the reception desk, an employee streams Chinese and Western pop. Funsok doesn't think there's anything special about the eclectic mix. He says plugged-in millennials around the world are figuring out how to keep cherished traditions and identities while being part of the global youth culture. Tuppies, the young urban Tibetans in China, are no exception. Reporting from Chengdu, this is Jocelyn Ford for America Abroad. Coming up, the story of what happened when a Tibet activist met a Beastie Boy. When you put the two together, what do you get? <laughs> so a benefit concert was pretty obvious. To weigh in on this conversation, tweet us at America underscore abroad. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand, and today we're exploring Tibet. In March 2008, hundreds of Tibetan monks peacefully protested in their regional capital, Lhasa, to mark the 49th anniversary of the Tibetan uprising against Beijing. Soon, the movement spread throughout the plateau, and clashes with Chinese law enforcement grew violent. They were massive. That's Gray Tuttle from Columbia University's Modern Tibet Department. We've never seen anything like what we saw in the 1980s. Tibet's government in exile said that in that month alone, 140 Tibetans were killed. And according to human rights organizations, 2,300 were arrested by Chinese authorities. If you worked for the government, even if you your job was planting trees or guarding the reforestation projects, you were given a task of watching a part of the streets to make sure no demonstrations happened. While those widespread protests have died down, a disturbing trend has emerged in Tibet. Since 2009, more than 140 people have lit themselves on fire to protest Chinese rule. They're so frustrated and so oppressed and blocked at every turn from having an outlet for their frustration that once this movement started toward self-immolation, it became 
the only out that some people had. And it's, of course, horrible. These actions are heart-wrenching and also relatively new, says Tuttle. In fact, the strategies for resisting Chinese rule have undergone a number of transformations since China took over in 1950. It actually started with an armed resistance, one backed by the CIA. They had very few arms, they had no radios, they had no equipment, and they were delighted to take CIA help. That's Ann Thurston, a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. She recently co-wrote a book with the Dalai Lama's older brother, Giallo Dunjip. She says the goal of the U.S. was to try to stop the spread of communism. So the help that the CIA gave was, first of all, they took young Tibetan men to the United States, to Colorado, to train them as guerrilla fighters. And then they supplied them with arms and equipment. Tibet has a long warrior tradition. It had an army that served under the Dalai Lama. But even with the CIA's help, the Tibetans were completely overwhelmed by Chinese forces. It was a sort of thorn in the side of China. But in terms of ever being committed to giving enough arms and training enough people that they could, in fact, divest themselves of Chinese rule, it was just impossible. It wasn't set up that way. The situation changes very dramatically in 1959 when there is in Lhasa, which is the capital of Tibet, an uprising, a resistance. And in the midst of that, as the crowds in the streets were going larger and larger and as the Chinese military was on the verge of coming in, the Dalai Lama fled to India. Tezpur in the northeast of India has become known all over the world, for it was here that India received the Dalai Lama after his flight from Tibet. India offered the god king of Buddhism a safe refuge from the communist Chinese. Now everything changes because now the Dalai Lama is outside of Tibet. He sets up a government in exile. And at that point, he also begins trying to link up with, for instance, the United Nations and from other countries. We're still in the midst of the Cold War, but nobody is willing to sort of commit themselves all out for Tibetan independence. Further complicating matters, America's new overtures toward China. In 1972, President Richard Nixon made the case for the shift in an address to the nation. I have taken this action because of my profound conviction that all nations will gain from a reduction of tensions and a better relationship between the United States and the People's Republic of China. At the same time, in India, the Dalai Lama began spreading a new strategy for winning back rights, nonviolent resistance. Here's Colombia's Gray Tuttle. It seems very clear that the, I mean, the concept of ahimsa, the nonviolence, is a Hindu concept. You know, seeing the example of Gandhi in India, the Dalai Lama and the Tibetans living in India, I think is where they got this idea. But not much changed for Tibetans. China was still in control. The 70s was a, a real lull for Tibet in general. You know, it was during the Cultural Revolution, so things were pretty shut down in Tibet. In the late 1980s, the Dalai Lama made an international appeal to reconcile Tibet's grievances with China. He developed a new idea, which came to be known as the Middle Way Approach. Our Middle Way is not seeking independence some meaningful autonomy which constitution of people's problem of china is provided kedor ukasong the dalai lama's representative in north america explains how it works what his holiness has said and what the tibetan leadership is uh, stating is that 
materially, economically, Tibetans are still very underdeveloped. So for the good of the economy, for the good of just real material benefits, it's okay for the Tibetans to live within the People's Republic of China. But we do want autonomy on preservation of our culture and our language, our way of life, the environment. Uh, so those, uh, those are areas that we just can't compromise on. The Dalai Lama's push led the United States and Europe to officially recognize the human rights abuses in Tibet. Emboldened by this support, Tibetan protesters took to the streets of Lhasa. The response from China, a harsh military crackdown, and hundreds of people died between 1987 and 1989. This was the response of paramilitary police. Tear gas grenades scattering the crowd. While Tibetans were struggling to be heard at home, by the 1990s, Westerners began taking up their cause in greater numbers. And Tibet became a pop culture cause celeb. There were movies like Seven Years in Tibet and Kundun, and actors like Richard Gere speaking out. The biggest push came from the Tibetan Freedom Concerts. Behind the scenes of this massive global concert series was a 23-year-old woman named Erin Potts. After studying Tibetan language and culture, she decided to move to Kathmandu, Nepal. She devoted herself to the Tibetan refugees there. She learned their language and their culture. One day, she got word a famous musician was coming to town. Somebody in my group of friends knew one of the people that Adam Yauk from the Beastie Boys was traveling with to Nepal. And ended up having a party one night. But Potts was not impressed. I didn't appreciate the Beastie Boys music. I guess that's the most diplomatic way to say it. Um, you know, I thought that their uh, party boy antics and their misogynist lyrics were... I didn't want to have anything to do with them. But I met Yauk at this party and was very impressed with him and was kind of like, I thought you were going to be a jerk. Um, and he's like, yeah, I know we kind of have that reputation. But they found a connection when the topic turned to Tibet. He had met some Tibetan refugees when he had been trekking uh, earlier in his trip there. And these refugees had just come over the border. And he had a conversation with them about why are you leaving? And so that piqued his interest, and then here I was doing all this work. As time progressed, so did Yauk's interest in Tibet. Potts became his eyes on the ground, sending him photos from demonstrations in Tibet and keeping him informed of news from the activist community. Within a few years, Yauk decided he wanted to do something to help. You know, I'm an activist. He's a musician. When you put the two together, what do you get? <laughs> so a benefit concert was pretty obvious as one of the things that we could do. The Tibetan Freedom Concerts were not an overnight success. Yauk and Potts had three failed attempts at getting them off the ground. But things changed in 1996 when the two planned an event at San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. All of a sudden on this one, it was like, bam. We had bands saying yes. We had a place to have it. We had a promoter who could help us make it not just a concert, but my emphasis was that this is a message concert. Potts decided the goal was to stimulate activism and not just donations. 
To that end, she made Tibetans an integral part of each performance, bringing Tibetan experts and exiles on stage to educate audiences. We just want to thank everyone for coming out and supporting Tibet. And, uh, and especially, we just want to ask everybody who's here today to come to the demonstration tomorrow. Potts created packages to brief the musicians on the cause. One of her proudest moments came in 1998 during the D.C. Tibetan Freedom Concert when the normally press-shy Radiohead frontman Tom York made himself available before the show. Somebody actually asked him, you don't normally show up to do press, why are you here? And his response was, there's a lot of crap reasons to be a rock star. This is the good one. Over the span of five years, the concerts brought in millions of dollars in donations and received international attention through the broadcasts online and on MTV. But Pot says that's not how she measured success. She's most proud of how the concerts helped grow the group Students for a Free Tibet, from 30 chapters in the U.S. to 650 worldwide. I think the movement needed this burst of energy, of people coming into the movement, of the spotlight and money. And then it needed to do the hard work that movements have to do. The 90s were an incredible time for the Tibetan issue, and I think they were a special moment, um, like a tipping point. Laden Tetong is the director of Tibet Action Institute. It's a group that focuses on advancing technology and digital security strategies for Tibetans. She says the concerts were important for galvanizing the movement. But now we have Tibetans in numbers like never before living in Canada, the U.S., and Europe, leading the freedom movement themselves. They're doing it by embracing new technology, which brings new risks. In 2009, a team of researchers from the University of Toronto discovered a massive cyber spying operation they called GhostNet. They say the ring was based in China and infiltrated mostly political targets, including the office of the Dalai Lama. Now, as more regular Tibetans embrace technology, they have to find ways to protect themselves from surveillance. Emily Johnson has more from Dharamsala, India. Oh, just like this. Was that your mother? Uh, my mother lives in Hassa. Okay, what was she saying there? Uh, about the money. <laughs> Saring Sandhu sits hunched over his iPhone in a cafe in McLeod Ganj, the old British hill station that looks out over Dharamsala. Sandhu left Tibet in 1998, and he's using a popular mobile application called WeChat to communicate with his parents back home in Lhasa. His mother just let him know she was sending some money, but they have to be careful. I only talk uh, greeting words, good morning, or how's your day. Uh, I didn't talk about uh, politics or something like that. It was not so very long ago now that it took months or even years for messages to pass between Tibetan exiles and their loved ones back home. The rise of mobile technology and the access to information it provides has changed things for this repressed community to a degree it's hard to overstate. Imagine your social media accounts, email, and WhatsApp all rolled into one. That's WeChat. It's a lifeline, except for one thing. It's a Chinese app, and his messages are very likely being monitored. If they're caught saying the wrong thing, the consequences for his parents back home could be dire. So I'm afraid... 
if they kiss, they have a big problem for my parents. A young man named Gonpotinle is one of many examples of what's at stake for Tibetans who are caught doing or saying something Beijing considers rebellious. I meet Tinle at the headquarters for the Guchisum movement, a haven for former political prisoners who've escaped to India. Tinle was arrested at the age of 19 for protesting in 2008. He served two and a half years in prison. So he says um, one month and 15 days was extreme torture. Now he describes a lot of various methods of torture, you know, one with electrical rods and uh, usage of very, very cold water and uh, no food. After his release in 2010, it took him several years to put together enough money to make a run for the border. He's been in McLeod Ganj for a year and a half now and hasn't spoken with his family because of his work. So he says he uses WeChat, but uh, he, has, he, he has never contacted his family members because it's just too dangerous since he's politically active. No? One phone call from a politically active Tibetan in India no, means the disappearance of the whole family. Tibetan activist and poet Tenzin Sundu wrote, When it rains in Dharamsala, the raindrops wear boxing gloves. He's not kidding. The switchback streets of McLeod Ganj run like rivers, past stalls selling Tibetan jewelry and carved wooden flutes, on down to where the central Tibetan administration clings to the hillside. So what do we see on the screen? It's not always, uh, it's not always the case. This is Lobsang. I've changed his name because he's not authorized to speak to the press, but he was willing to tell me about his work as a security researcher here in the CTA's Tibetan Computer Resource Center. Example, like, I can just create a malicious uh, file over here, and then I can just name it, like, .rtf. The TCRC receives these sorts of emails regularly, where an attacker impersonates a trusted contact. But the CTA has also weathered more sophisticated forms of attack, in 2013, the Chinese-language version of the website was hacked in what's known as a watering hole attack, which lets hackers identify, spy on, and attack visitors to the site. Ladan Tefang of Tibet Action has also received her fair share of targeted email attacks. We can assume the Chinese government is monitoring everything, and at sensitive times or when they deem people's behavior on WeChat too risky, they try to make examples of people. The Tibet Action Institute was founded about a year after the Tibet uprising in 2008. The tools have evolved dramatically, even in the short time since. But the Institute's mission has stayed the same. Teach Tibetans how to protect themselves while still taking advantage of what the technology has to offer. We've played this role of trying to make sure people understand how the technology works and where the potential threats are and what it means to use WeChat um, uh, in terms of allowing the Chinese government the keys to your house, basically, or your mobile phone and all your data. Despite all the risks, Ladan sees the rise of this kind of technology as a net plus for the freedom movement. Tibetans, she says, have always openly challenged the Chinese authorities, and their willingness to keep doing so means they are organizing, getting information out, and telling their own stories. Back at the cafe in McLeod Ganj, Sarang Sandu finishes his call with his mother. She sent me her money, and it's just like a Western Union. One bill paid. Such a small thing, but so important to fractured families that once never dreamed of being able to support one another. And that ability to connect is one reason Ladan believes there is more hope for the freedom movement now than there has been for decades. This is Emily Johnson in Dharamsala, India.
So as Tibetans are prepared to once again make a move, will the world follow them? Activists like Laden Tetong say it's going to take action from Western governments to persuade the Chinese to change their policies. Yet here in the U.S., neither Republican nor Democratic administrations have done much to push China on this issue. Some lawmakers are nervous about disrupting trade and economic ties. Others say that's no excuse. We can still trade with you and still have a candid uh, conversation about human rights and about Tibet. Jim McGovern is a Democratic congressman from Massachusetts and co-chair of the bipartisan Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission. I think the Chinese government is thinking that the Dalai Lama is is getting older um, and that when he dies that nobody will care anymore. And I think it's important for us to make it clear that that's not going to be the case, uh, that we care about Tibet, uh, not just because we have high respect for His Holiness the Dalai Lama, but we care about Tibet because we care about human rights. Still, McGovern says the U.S. needs to do more than just make a statement. We've heard a lot of words over the years, and the words that have been spoken by the Obama administration and by the Bush administration are all good words. What I'm concerned about is the lack of concrete action. And I think at this point, there needs to be a consequence to uh, this Tibetan policy, uh, which I think is terrible. And if there's not a consequence, then there's no incentive for China to change. McGovern has introduced legislation that calls for reciprocity laws that would push for greater access to Tibet for Americans. I think it's important that not only members of Congress, but journalists, that human rights defenders, that Tibetans in the United States have the ability to go visit Tibet. He has also talked about setting up a U.S. consulate in Lhasa. I get lots of kind of nasty looks because a lot of the official government doesn't like that idea. But I think that would be a good step. McGovern says everyone is aware the Dalai Lama is getting old. I think there's a group in the Chinese government who think that if they just just wait it out, the Dalai Lama will ultimately die and they get on and, the, and that's the end of the issue. I think it's important for us now to push back in a meaningful way. And I want the Chinese government to know there is a, are a significant number of people, especially here in the U.S. government, who are sympathetic and who are supportive of the cause of the Tibetan people. We're not going away. And neither is the exile community. This past March, Tibetans in exile held elections for new parliamentarians and prime minister. While still unrecognized by the Chinese, these officials are still waiting for the day when they can go back to Tibet to lead their people. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Yael Evan Orr with additional production help from Flan Williams. Special thanks to Margaret Evans, New America Media, the Gerontological Society of America, and the Archstone Foundation. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or by visiting our websites, americaabroad.org or pri.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by the Henry Luce Foundation, Public Radio International stations, and listeners like you. PRI Public Radio International.